I feel like all these unicorns are in all these institutions and they want things to be better. They want to move the needle. And I think if the film can give people an opportunity to work together as a community and move that needle in the right direction in a positive way, then I've done it all that I, that's what I want from the film. It was when a family member showed up and she started talking about her son that had mental illness. And to hear her describe to this group of officers that you, you might get a 911 call from my house one day. And when you respond, you might be even terrified because my son is scary. He's big and he does not like the police and he becomes very psychotic and he will fight. She makes a profound statement after that. She goes, you might have to shoot my son because you won't know what else to do. And I understand that. And I want you to go home safe to your family. And I won't blame you for that. And that hit me in the stomach like a, like a punch from Mike Tyson. Like, I've got kids. I could not stand up in front of a group of police officers and say, it's okay for you to do that. I understand. Like, no, there are other choices. It's called being educated and knowing how to de-escalate and, and knowing how to empathize with somebody. So it was her story that changed my entire career path. The film is about human connection. It's about policing and it's about mental health. It's about a lot of things, but it's really about human connection and how we take care of each other. I know it sounds a little, maybe a little simple, but I don't think it is. I think we have gotten very removed and separated from each other and from difficult discussions or difficult issues that we are not sure of how to handle. And so we just put our head in the sand and we don't handle them. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. Today, our topic is first responders and behavioral health. More specifically, we're diving into an amazing documentary called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. As you're about to hear, documentary filmmaker Jennifer McShane spent years following the work of two members of the San Antonio Police Department's Behavioral Health Unit. Viewers of the film walk in their shoes, as well as in the shoes of the people that these officers are assisting. It is nothing short of powerful filmmaking regarding a transformational approach to mental health crisis response. And we should note that this film exists thanks to significant support from Arizona's own David and Laura Lovell Foundation. In this episode, you're going to hear directly from Jen and Officer Ernie Stevens. At the end of this podcast, we're going to give you information on how to stream Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. And more importantly, how all first responders nationwide can experience this fantastic film for free right now. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about first responders, the people they're called upon to help, the connection and empathy that is central to a better outcome, and much more as of June 14, 2021. Today, we have an incredible pair of people with us to talk about crisis intervention and behavioral health first off. She is an incredible creator, an incredible filmmaker. Her name is Jennifer McShane. She is the director of Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, which won the Jury Award for Empathy and Craft at South by Southwest in 2019 and is currently streaming on HBO. Jennifer, how are you? I am great, and I'm very happy to be here. We also have with us today Mr. Ernie Stevens. Ernie, you've been in the police business, if you will, for 28 years, including 25 and a half years in the San Antonio Police Department, and you are one of the founding members of the San Antonio Police Department's Mental Health Unit. You're also an incredible star of a movie. How are you doing today? I'm doing incredible, and I cannot wait to get this going. Let's do it. All right. Jen, what in the world motivated you to make a documentary about a bunch of cops in San Antonio? 
I'm darn lucky I did, but I, I think it actually first started, I mean, it was twofold, but the kind of initial interest came from my previous film, which followed five women in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in a maximum security prison. So I filmed there for about four and a half years. And what became kind of painfully obvious to me was the connection between mental health and who was sitting behind bars. Like, it was just clear. But that film couldn't really address it. it. That was about parenting and mothering and a lot of other issues, but not really mental health. But it was kind of percolating in the back of my head. And then a mutual friend of mine was a reporter, and she had done a story about all the kind of jail diversion and mental health work happening in San Antonio. And when I read it, the mental health unit was featured in that article. And it really spoke to me. And it's funny, someone had sent me the article knowing my interest from my last film. And I really thought, I've got to check this out. So I went out to San Antonio without my camera, much to Ernie's curiosity, was piqued. Like, what is this filmmaker doing here without her camera? And I kind of just went around in a car with them for a couple of days to just make sure that what I thought it was, it really was. And it turned out to be that and even more. And I thought, I've got to make this film. So that's kind of how it happened. It's called research, Ernie. She has to decide whether she wants to actually spend time with you or not. Hold on, to my defense now, hold on. <laughs> I, see, I flagged the original phone call from Jen and I got super excited. I said, I, I told Joe, I said, hey, Joe. I just got off the phone with this person named Jen McShane. She's a filmmaker and she wants to come down here and do a ride along. This is going to be amazing. And then she shows up with no camera. And I'm like, Joe's, he's always picking on me. And he's like, dude, are you serious? Like next time, let me answer the phone. <laughs> she told me she was a filmmaker. Exactly. I exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and to also to add to that story within about, 45 minutes or an hour, maybe an hour and a half, but I don't even think it was that long. I was like, what am I doing without my camera? <laughs> because the air, like everything that was unfolding was so amazing. And I was like, oh, that was a mistake. But it's usually good, actually, because you want to kind of get a connection with the people that you're following and kind of have a better understanding without the trappings of the camera. So now you've done this ride along. You've met these two guys who are obviously very special. We've all seen that through the documentary. Yeah. Then what do you do? How does one build a documentary on a subject this sensitive, this timely, and this difficult to portray? That's always the biggest challenge is funding and convincing people it's a good idea. They tend to think it's a great idea after you've finished. <laughs> so I went back and I got some seed money from someone who had supported my last film, who kind of understood where I was coming from. And I used, and the actual, to be honest, the first shoot was my own money. I just went back and thought, this is just too important. So I went back for a week and just shot a lot of training and things like that and a few rides. And then I went back and used that footage to convince someone to give me some seed money. And then it kind of snowballed from there, from different grants. And then one of those grants was Lovell, who was like a tremendous supporter and understood, had a lot of faith in what I was trying to do. And then when they saw the finished product, they really kind of felt like, okay, she was doing what we thought, we hoped, so. Any regrets about not having a camera that first day? Yes. <laughs> There was so much good footage that we had over 300 hours of footage for a 93 minute piece. So it would have just been more hard decisions if I had had my camera that day. And I do think it's actually important to have time just person to person beforehand, because really this kind of filmmaking is really based on trust that you're you know, doing it for the right reasons. And it was important for me for them to hopefully understand that. But I didn't want to try to over explain what I was doing because the idea was to observe, not kind of put my vision on what their work was, just to observe what they were doing because it was so special. Ernie, Jen showed up 
at this ride along, hoping to create something out of something that you helped to co-found this mental health unit. You've been on the forest for 24 years. Where did you start with all this? How did you decide that this was something that you needed to do and that San Antonio needed? It started when I got signed up to go to the crisis intervention training. It was my day off and my partner at work decided to sign me up for this training without asking my permission. And I come back to work and, and I'm being told, hey, we're going to go to the CIT training for a week, which was okay with me because I work nights. And if you go to training, you get to go to a daylight schedule and you get the weekend off before the class. So everything was good up until the point to where I found out what the class was about. They said, well, this class is about mental health and how to deescalate somebody to mental health crisis. And right away, I, I really gave pushback, to be honest with you, because when you're ignorant to what mental health really is and how it presents, and you've had no formal training about it, and your past experiences in dealing with calls involving mental health and knowing you did not know what to do really gave me a lot of anxiety, to be honest with you, and wasn't something I was looking forward to. However, I did attend the training and it was on day four. I'd sat through almost three days of PowerPoints and role playing, which is very uncomfortable, but it was when a family member showed up and she started talking about her son that had mental illness. She's standing up in front of a group of about 35 of us, 35 officers, and she's talking about, you will never understand my life. And she's in her like early 60s now, and she should be starting to enjoy her retirement years. That's non-existent in her mind. Her mind is, I will be taking care of my adult son who has schizophrenia for the rest of my life because that is my life. And to hear her describe to this group of officers that you, you might get a 911 call from my house one day. And when you respond, you might be even terrified because my son is scary, he's big, and he does not like the police, and he becomes very psychotic, and he will fight. She makes a profound statement after that. She goes, you might have to shoot my son because you won't know what else to do. And I understand that, and I want you to go home safe to your family, and I won't blame you for that. And that hit me in the stomach like a, like a punch from Mike Tyson. Like, I've got kids. I could not stand up in front of a group of police officers and say, it's okay for you to do that. I understand that you probably would have had no other choice. Like, no, there are other choices. It's called being educated and knowing how to deescalate and, and knowing how to empathize with somebody. So it was her story that changed my entire career path. Because at the time I was on the gang unit, you talk about a complete 180 from kicking in doors to now taking the time to really try to make a human connection with somebody it was just something that was at the right time. The mental health here in San Antonio was being revamped. They had new leadership coming in that wanted to partner with law enforcement and make law enforcement a priority. So I describe it in the film as a perfect storm. And it was just a perfect timing. It was God's timing. The film felt like a perfect storm too, because important as it was, as vital as I felt it was, I had to make this film. I felt I'd been blessed with these amazing subjects to tell this from a different lens. The fact that it's so timely by the time I finished was kind of amazing. Ernie just told a story, Jen, about what caused his transformation. It seems eerily like the film sort of tracks that transformation and tries to make that same transformation for any viewer who watches it. Exactly. Exactly. How do you as a documentarian do that work of telling a story without being per se manipulative. 
Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. What I was saying about not over explaining everything I was trying to do. I didn't want to be feel like I was manipulating situations. So I was trying to observe as much as possible rather than kind of set things up in any way. But in my mind, the film is about human connection. It's about policing and it's about mental health. It's about a lot of things, but it's really about human connection and how we take care of each other. And that is very relatable. And so by just having enough footage and the fact that they were so good at what they do, we were so patient to kind of keep shooting as much as possible. I think then it becomes like this beautiful jigsaw puzzle. You're putting together all these pieces to kind of create, hopefully, a picture that will emote enough so people understand they can walk in those shoes on either side, hopefully. And, you know, unfortunately, the jigsaw puzzle has about 500 extra pieces. (laughs) So you have to kind of figure out how to tell that story in a way that makes sense and does justice to the subjects and is authentic and hopefully not manipulative at all. Ernie, it's not Beverly Hills Cop but it is kind of a buddy cop movie. Talk about your partner, Joe, and yourself and how you came to be a unit together and what the progression of that was as you both went through CIT and then started to implement it. Well, it's interesting because Joe was actually one of my students. We got the training originally from Houston. And when they handed us the training as a train the trainer course, I became one of the, the lead instructors for San Antonio. And Joe came through one of my trainings. And we had an opening being announced that we were going to expand from a whopping two officers to four officers and I hear him out in the parking lot one day, I'm walking a prisoner in and he goes, Hey, you're, you're the mental health guy. Let me talk to you for a second. He goes, I'm really interested in getting in this unit. How do I do it? And I'm like, dude, what do you got? Like five days on the department? Like he looks so new. <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, you've been through the training, you know, there's look at the procedures of what you have to do when you're handling a call with mental health and be knowledgeable of the criteria for involuntary commitment to so just study up and, and come in and, and have an interview. And, and really, I thought that was the last time I was ever going to see him. To my chagrin, he goes in. Anybody that follows Joe knows he has the gift of gab. He goes in there and he just enlightens the interview and they fall in love with him. And then I, I'm called into office. I said, hey, we're going to be bringing on Officer Joe Smarrow. And I'm like, who's that? <laughs> And then they show me and I'm like, that kid, like, doesn't he only have like a couple of years on the department or something? Like he doesn't have much experience, but hey, y'all picked him. I'll train him. It'll be good. No problem. And lo and behold, he started out kind of like my little brother. We would always go and fly airplanes together or go golfing, whatever, just, just friends. I mean, we became very, very good friends. And I saw this progression in him. He started to get help. And then, of course, in the documentary, he talks about he goes and sees his own therapist and he starts to really have this actualization of, wow, I'm not really practicing what I'm preaching because I've got issues myself and I need to to learn from this and grow from this. And if doing so, I'll be able to help the community, I think, at an even higher success rate and watching him go to school and, and get therapy he just like transformed between my eyes and became like my little brother to like almost a mentor to me, believe it or not. And I got to sit back and watch this guy just continue to shine and shine. And I was just blessed to have him as a partner for all those years, because I think we really complimented each other well, because we have such a different upbringing. We had such a different just lifestyle other than just our hobbies that we were engaged in. Our family dynamics were different. Our childhood was different. There's a 10-year gap between us. I'm 30, he's 20, right? But it just seemed like it was such a, a perfect fit because when we went on scene to help somebody, 
there was one goal and one goal only, and that was to connect with that person and do whatever it took to make sure that they got the best possible outcome that we could provide for them without letting somebody just fall through the cracks again. Jen, you mentioned in the creation of this film, you wanted to capture a more empathetic way of approaching behavioral health. You got these two buddies, Ernie and Joe, these two knuckleheads who are actually really incredible people. But then how do you shape a story for people who have no idea what we're talking about here and who bring to the movie so many preconceptions? Yeah. Well, I think it was really important to make it as immersive as possible. So you were kind of on this ride along. You were in with them. So you're kind of experiencing it along with them. Documentaries that kind of preach, I think, often do a disservice to the topic. If you want people to emote and have empathy, they have to kind of walk in the shoes a bit. So it was really important to me to make it as immersive as possible. And you may notice there's a fair bit of humor because they're both hilarious, especially together. It could have been a two-hour laugh track, but we opted not to do that given the topic. But I think that was actually really important because humor, I think people assume in a documentary, especially a social issue documentary, that it is going to be very kind of dour and serious and tell you the right thing to do. And I just didn't want this to feel like a how-to manual, like how to make your city better, how to make your police department. That's not, the idea was to connect with the two of them. And I thought by doing it through as law enforcement as a lens, it's a little counterintuitive because there has, even then when I was making the film, there was such polarization between law enforcement and some communities. So I think that really helped by, and not having, you know, voice of God kind of narrative, but having them kind of tell the story. And then of course, Kendra, and I was blessed with a great team because sound and cinematographer and edit were amazing. So EJ was squashed into the back of a police car for more hours than I can tell you. And Paul did the sound and he was really great about just keeping that intimacy that we needed with the sound since we were at a distance for a lot of the shots. And then my editor was just amazing at kind of helping me weave. It's true. It's like a lot. And how do you make that a story? And a lot of it is happens in the edit. I know we used to have the Kendra scene at the end of the film. And that was kind of the conventional wisdom that that was such a powerful scene. It should go at the end. And then we moved it up so that we could do the follow-up visits with her. And it kind of changed the whole, it's kind of like a Rubik's cube. When you finally get all the colors, you're like, ah, that's it. Editing is a long process to kind of weave all that together, but it's worth it. The time is worth it if you spend the time. Jen just called it the Kendra scene. I think we better do a little storytelling. Talk about Kendra. Talk about what you and Joe encountered that night back in 2017. And talk about why this is such a pivotal moment in the film. We met Kendra one night when we were working overtime. We were actually signed up to come in and work patrol, which means we were going to be putting on our uniform and driving a marked patrol car and then answering calls for service. Uh, We did that because we love the community so much, or it paid a lot of money to come in on our days off. So I'll let your listeners decide which it was, but it's actually both. And we get a call one night. I remember the dispatcher called us and said, hey, we got a report of a female that's calling in saying that she's going to jump off a bridge. And when they gave the location, it was less than a quarter mile from us. It was like one one exit down. So we advised the dispatcher, hey, we're close. We're going to head that way and see what we find. And sure enough, as we turn the corner, I see Kendra sitting on the edge of the bridge with her feet 
over the bridge in a position where I've seen people jump off a bridge before. So immediately I knew that we had a very serious call involving a life or death situation. And we positioned our cars, we shut down our emergency lights to try to mitigate any kind of a stimulus that would cause any kind of anxiety for her. She had enough going on already. Joe and I get out of our car. I decide that I'm going to be the one that approaches her and, and tries to develop a rapport. And immediately all she sees is a uniform and there's immediate pushback. Get away, starts cursing us. I don't want you here. You're going to tase me. You're going to hurt me. All I want to do is jump. And what we tried to do was lower our tone. For a lot of people, that's a very emotionally charged situation. And you have a lot of traffic below you on the highway. And to communicate with her, we would have to elevate our voice, which would mean almost like we're screaming at her. And I wasn't going to do it. So I basically told her, look, I'm just going to move up a little bit to where you can hear me better because I don't want to scream at her. And then I made the decision, I'm going to sit down on the sidewalk to allow her to be over me, almost as if, look, you have the power right now. And that's fine because I really don't want it. This is about you and it's not about me. So we tried to develop a rapport. She continues just to see the uniform. Joe and I take turns trying to connect with her. And then I finally talked to her and I said, look, why don't you come over here and sit down for a moment? Nobody's going to grab you. Nobody's going to handcuff you. We just want to know if we can help you. And then she was very surprised when I mentioned that we know all about mental health because in her mind, and she admitted to it later, since when do police know anything about mental health? But when I started using terms that she had heard from doctors and nurses and treatment providers, I think it clicked that, hey, maybe they do know what they're talking about and they're not trying to grab me. They want to shake my hand or they want me to sit down. And that's kind of where the conversation went. At one point, she came over to sit down, but then she got nervous to back up and was getting ready to climb back over. And Joe said, no, no, don't do that. We had to calm her back down, talk to her for a few more minutes and get her back over to where she sat next to me. We talked about some treatment options for her. She thought she was all completely out of options. She was very unaware that there were some new facilities in town, some new options for her, offered her something to drink, something to eat and then promised her that we would get her in treatment immediately with no wait time, because that's also a concern for people, is that they're going to be sitting around in a hospital waiting for hours and hours, and that was not going to be the case. So by the grace of God, she climbed down, sat next to us, and took me up on the offer to get some help for her, and that's exactly what we did. Joe and I took her into the crisis center, to which she immediately started to get some treatment. Jen, that was the most boring version of what is actually an intense, intense moment in the film. <laughs> uh, well, I, I wanted just to add a little something about that story, which is that SAPD insisted that scene is done via dash cam and they would only release the dash cam footage to Kendra, which I really applaud. Like uh, some journalists, oh, First Amendment, blah, blah, blah. I think nobody should have your worst day except you and you can choose who. And so I went and talked to her about it. And much to my shock, really, she not only said, yes, use it, but kind of encouraged me. She said, people don't understand how you can get to that place. And so I think it's probably good to use it. And I was kind of blown away. I mean, I was hopeful that she would let me use it, but she really kind of understood right away the value of such a harsh kind of situation that she found herself in. And then she ended up agreeing to let us follow her. So we see her a couple of times throughout the film. 
which I think is really important because I want it, like I was saying, the film is from the perspective of law enforcement, but I really wanted people who are on the other side getting help to also see themselves in a sense or see family members. And Ernie, the first time I spoke to you, probably two weeks ago, you literally just gotten off the phone with Kendra 10 minutes before I talked to you. And that's four years later. Yeah. In fact, I'm glad you bring it up because it was just yesterday I spoke to her again and I actually screenshot the conversation and sent it to Jen. And she said that she's doing very good right now in her relationship, in her sobriety and in her mental health. It goes to show that if you invest in people, if you actually take the time and invest in them and follow up with them and let them know, hey, you just weren't a call. You weren't just a call for service. You're an individual that was having an enormously scary evening to where you were contemplating jumping off a bridge into oncoming traffic. And you allowed us, you allowed us the opportunity to make that connection with you. We didn't earn the right to do it. We certainly really didn't have any reason to be able to connect with you other than you allowed that to happen. So in her doing so, it was very important that we followed up with her because we knew how critical that night was for her. And like you said, four years later, I'm still in contact with her because I mean, she's my friend now. I mean, she, she honestly is my friend. She has a great outlook on life. She inspires me to want to be a better person. And I think that's what Jen has accomplished in this. It's, it's human connection that you see in the documentary, but it's real life too. It's right. It's what happened to me with her. We made a connection and uh, I'm a better person because of her. be clear, we are not ruining this film. You should watch every single second of this film as it unfolds, not the way we're telling the stories. That said, I got to bring up one other example that I think is so pivotal in this film, Ernie. And that's the discussion around an individual who actually isn't in the film, but is spoken about. An individual who actually calls the police and says, I am outside of my home. I am in my car. I have a gun to my head and I want to kill myself. And you and Joe show up on the scene and what do you find? That was actually Joe. And what had happened that night was that call was just on the outskirts of San Antonio. It had two other municipalities that were almost like touching this geographical area where San Antonio police and two other agencies were going to respond to this, which they did. And it was a female who was very distressed about her life situation. She was going through a divorce. Their house was about to be repossessed. And she had very little outlook in life, wasn't sure what was going to happen with her kids. So she waited for her husband and kids to fall asleep. And then she took a firearm from the house, went outside in the driveway and sat between two cars, which is a tactical nightmare, held the gun to her head and then called the police saying that she was feeling suicidal. So Joe gets the call. He was the one on duty that night. And they asked, hey, can you come out here and respond to this? So he did. And immediately it's playing out just like you would imagine this would play out on television. Police officers with AR-15s and shotguns and shields. And one person even had a ram, even though she was outside. It's like, what are you going to knock down? Like, what is going on? There was so much unknown. Yet all we know how to do as law enforcement when we respond with somebody with a gun is to show even more force because that's what we're trained to do. You bring a knife, we bring a gun. You bring a gun, we'll bring 20 guns. And that's what Joe looked around and saw. And he asked the supervisor, has anybody even tried to call her? Have we even spoken to her? 
And they were like, no, we were going to march down the street and give some orders and commands and have her drop the gun. And his response was, well, that's one option that could happen. Options number two or three is she could shoot herself. Or option number three is in the process of putting the gun down. Uh, one of the officers feels threatened. And now all six, seven officers are shooting at her because one person called asking for help. But because a gun was involved, we turned this thing into a tactical nightmare. So he ends up calling her. He uses all the skills that we teach in crisis intervention training. He de-escalates her. He uses active listening and makes a connection with her. And then he tells her something that police never say. Police never use this phrase, I'm scared. And he told her, he said, you know, you're scaring me right now. And it was like a light bulb went off for her in her head. She's like, what, what do you mean I'm scaring you? I'm, I'm the one that wants to die. He goes, no, I, I hear you say that. But there's a lot of people out here that have a lot of high-speed training, and we're afraid that you have a gun, and we could get hurt, you could get hurt, and we don't want to see that happen. And she said, well, I don't want to hurt you. What do you want me to do? And his response was simply just put the gun down on top of the car and just come out with your hands and walk towards me. This is how I'm dressed, and I'll walk out, and I just want to talk to you. Nobody's going to handcuff you. We're just going to talk to you. And that is exactly what happened because he made a connection with her. He told her he was scared. And if you watch again, going back to Kendra, I said that to her and it was true. I was scared. Ask Jen, I'm terrified of heights. I did not want to be up there. So, you know, it was about, it was really about connecting with people where they are and saying, Hey, I see you. And Joe says that quite a bit, not per se verbally, but with his heart and with his mind is I see you. I see that you're in pain and you don't have to hide from me because we're not here to hurt you. Uh, We're here to help you. We're here to listen to you and we're here to support you. And that's exactly what happened. She places the gun down and avoided a very volatile situation. Jen, this film is incredible. It's available now on HBO. Uh, Yeah, any HBO. As you mentioned, you had guys stashed in the backseat of Ernie and Joe's car for three years. You put so many years of love into this work. What's the message? What's the takeaway? What's the thing? What's What's the change that you hope to see in the world based on this film? Human connection, I know it sounds a little, maybe a little simple, but I don't think it is. I think we have gotten very removed and separated from each other and from difficult discussions or difficult issues that we are not sure of how to handle. And so we just put our head in the sand and we don't handle them. And so I think, you know, I've just been so moved by the response from the film. I mean, from the first screening when we showed it South by Southwest and then everywhere across the country, young people, old people, we had people, older men in tears coming up to Ernie, Joe and I in uh, Arkansas. One man came up and said his mother was like Kendra on the bridge and there was no Ernie and Joe there to save her. Other people came up and introduced themselves as suicide survivors, police officers, So many police officers have come to us. Right now, actually, we're offering the film for any police department in the country can download it and use it with their officers for at no cost through my education distributor until next year, May 22. And that's wonderful because it's like, I feel like all these unicorns are in all these institutions and they want things to be better. They want to move the needle. And I think if the film can give people an opportunity to work together as a community and move that needle in the right direction in a positive way, then I've done it all that I, that's what I want from the film. And so I think it's not preachy, but it allows people to hopefully be inspired. This is all good. I see happening here and we can try to emulate that in our own community, in our own way. That makes sense. I know every community is a little different. 
So that's what I would hope. Have you ever seen an audience get through it in a live screening without just buckets of tears? No. And even more so, I'd say without tons, this is pre-COVID, tons of hugs and people getting up and just sharing the most unbelievable things. We had a photographer at South by Southwest to get up during the screening. She was working for the event. She said, I'm sorry, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I just have to tell you, she talked about her own mental health challenge and how grateful she was. We just, the officer, like 200 pound officer looked like a refrigerator, worked for the hostage unit, NYPD, stand up and tell the whole 200 room theater that he was in therapy. <laughs> or a 73-year-old former NYPT cop standing up and saying, thank you, thank you. I wish I had had this training. Like I wish I, because he talked about his own fear, which I think the film is also about officer fear and wellness. And that needs to be part of the conversation. So anyway, it's like talking about my children. I could go on and on, but I won't. But those are some of the things that I'm most proud of with the film. Ernie, let's build on that because it's mentioned in the film. This isn't just about officers helping individuals. This is also about officers taking care of themselves and the high suicide rate amongst officers, the mental health challenges amongst officers. What's the message from this film in that regard? Well, you know, she humanizes the badge. When you watch this documentary, you realize that police officers, oh my gosh, they're human also. They work way too much. They got families they're trying to provide for. They got child support they're trying to pay. They have lives. They, they go to school at night. They volunteer. They, they do all these things. And I'm glad that the film captured that because when you look at officer wellness and where we're at today, in 2019, 238 officers committed suicide. 45 died by violent means. This law enforcement profession kills themselves at a rate of almost four to one than dying in the line of duty. In this film, I'm so glad, highlighted Joe talking about his need to get into therapy or else who knows, he might've been number 239 because he's talked about it before. He's shared his feelings with me before about, yeah, I've had thoughts. Sometimes they're just fleeting thoughts, but yes, I've had them. And, and I like it because I've seen so many officers come up to us and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this. What can I expect? I was involved in a traumatic event what does help look like? And I think that's an important question because so many police officers know where to take somebody to get help, but then they stop at the door and say, okay, we got you here. We wish you nothing but the best. And then they go back to work, but they don't know what help looks like. And I think the important part of that is for an officer who doesn't know what help looks like for us to be able to show them, look, this is what it actually looks like. And I'm going to stick by your side and see you all the way through this. And what that does, that breaks the stigma of saying, it's okay not to be okay. I understand that, but it's not okay to stay that way. And in having these conversations and watching the documentary, that's what comes across when you look at what the takeaways are. For me, that was such a, an important part because in the film, we had two officers get shot on duty. One was killed in action. And the whole department just suffers when something like that happens. And that gave us such an opportunity to go out and do outreach within our own organization to say, hey, we're here to support you. And it's okay to hurt. And it's okay to cry. And it's okay to need services from time to time. Jen, the film obviously focuses on police officers, but this is a documentary for all first responders, isn't it? 
Well, just from my perspective, in terms of outreach, we've been reaching all kinds of mental health organizations and all kinds of first responders. And I think Ernie can really speak to the fact that when they train and when I was filming them training, they would often try to pair or fire officers with police because they have different strengths. And Ernie can speak to that. But uh, yeah, no, EMTs, we've done a ton of stuff in with EMTs and first responders of all kinds. Just the main subjects happen to be police officers, but it's it's across the board. It's completely universal, which is, and we're seeing that response actually in the film. Like people are responding in very profound and similar ways because I think it's so common, unfortunately, across the board. But Ernie, you could speak to training. Yeah, well, you know, San Antonio is one of the first places to incorporate the firefighters and paramedics into the crisis intervention training because we're responding to the same calls. And what was very interesting during the training and is, for example, if we use the conversation about the girl who wanted to come down in the driveway and uh, had suicidal thoughts about shooting herself. When we set that scenario up and we ask the audience that we're teaching, what did you hear? So many times we'll have the paramedics say, we heard somebody calling for help. And then we ask the law enforcement in the room, what did you hear? Oh, she's got a gun. So it just shows you the, the disconnect, even between first responders that are going to the exact same call they're hearing two different things. So the training really brings them together. And I love pairing the, the officer with the paramedic because the paramedic doesn't rely on everything that's on their gun belt. They don't have a taser or a baton or pepper spray or a gun. So they're very cognizant on what they say and what they do with the patient. Whereas the officer is a little bit more tactically sound and they're worried about, hey, I got all this stuff on my belt. And if this doesn't go the way I want it to go, well, then I'll make it go that way. And by the time the week is over, what you realize is you watch these officers get down on a knee and start touching the patient and even start asking medical questions. Do you have any medical issues I need to worry about where I can get a paramedic over here and start assisting you? So it's, it's very true that even though we have totally different backgrounds, we're responding to the same type of call with the same goal in mind, and that's best possible outcomes. So I think training your fire department really is a complete no-brainer when it comes to crisis intervention training, and it should be put on a priority list for sure. And also, you know what I love too, what I found about having first responders watching it was community, is a lot of times community doesn't know what's happening with first responders. So it's a beautiful opportunity. We've seen this again and again. I just in Madison, Wisconsin was the most recent again in Maine, where the community is saying, wait a minute, you're doing all this, this and this. So it's a it's a great opportunity for the community to get behind the first responder and be more supportive and for them to be aware of what's actually happening or being attempted. So yeah, yeah and, you know, and on the flip side of that, Jen, the, the first responders gain knowledge about community services that are available, such exactly. as the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and you see them come out and support the walks and the outreach and the health fair. So it's a great partnership, both with community and first responders. Thank you, Ernie, and thank you, Jen. Jen, without your tireless work and dedication, this film would not be telling such an important story about empathy, connection, and systemic transformation among first responders. Ernie, Without you and Joe and counterparts like you throughout the first responder community, there wouldn't be a transformational story to tell. Together, you are rewriting narratives, changing what seems like impossible into possible on a daily basis, transforming policies and systems, and saving lives. As Jen pointed out, we as a society seem to have lost our way on the importance of connection. 
as Ernie alluded to, we too often do not humanize the badge. This film helps us recognize that there are many steps yet to be taken that can help to ensure healthier outcomes, especially when it comes to mental health on both sides of the badge. Above all, Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops shows that law enforcement can and should evolve. The motto, after all, is to protect and serve. As behavioral health crises shatter lives every day, people do get scared. First responders do get called, and those first responders are owed the most effective tools required to get the best right outcomes for our communities. Want to watch this incredible film yourself? You can! For those of us who don't happen to be first responders, the film is currently streaming on HBO. But the really great news that Jen mentioned is that all first responders can see this incredible film for free right now. Communities can also request screenings. Everyone can see the film trailer, learn more, and connect with Jen's terrific production team at ErnieAndJoeTheFilm.com. That's ErnieAndJoeTheFilm.com. Like we have with this episode and the nearly 80 episodes before it, the Vitalist Spark podcast is focused on insights, strategies, and efforts that we all need to improve community health and well-being. We've been working to share the stories and insights regarding multiple aspects of this complex equation of health, which means that you can check out our back catalog of episodes focused on the pandemic, redistricting, the opioid crisis, affordable housing, food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and open spaces, and more. There's a lot to listen to, featuring guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.